We have come with open hearts. So let your ancient word impart. I've had a blast working on this sermon this week, just spending time in this passage. Um, yeah, it can be fun. I mean, part of it's been fun. Part of it's, um, you know, been difficult. My, my the top of my feet are sore. Um, my head is sore. My heart is sore in a good way. Um, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. Now, I put in your sermon notes, one commentator said that, that this section of Psalm 119 would prove revolutionary for us if we would only listen to it. Um, it's an extraordinary passage of Scripture in what it says, and yet it's very, very ordinary in the way it says it. And one of the difficult things um, with, with us as, as, as English-speaking people Um, most of us, including me, are not able to pick up the Hebrew Bible and read it as we would our English versions of the Scripture. And and that's unfortunate in some ways, especially when we come to a passage like today's. Because the very ordinary way that this passage says some things that are just extraordinary is through, uh, through through through, through a word that we would ignore. In, in a lot of English translations. It's, it's, it's the word and. It's the word that we would skip over. It's a, it's, it's a conjunction, for crying out loud. I'm not going to give a grammar lesson here, but it's a conjunction, you know. And so conjunctions connect two things, okay? They connect ideas. They connect sentences. They connect concepts. Well, what, I, what I've learned over the last couple of weeks as I've been studying this passage, as we come to this section, which... My translation, and probably yours too, says wah, W-A-W. Older translations, older versions will have it spelled V-A-V or Vav, which is actually closer to what the Hebrew letter sounds like. Okay, So that letter, which is just one, one I should have put it up on the screen, it's just, it's just one single strike of the pen. That letter is significant, and Hebrew scholars, teachers of the Torah, believe that where a letter first appears in the Torah, where a letter first appears in the Old Testament, is significant in that it gives that letter meaning and purpose throughout the rest of Scripture. What's interesting about that is the first time we see Vav in the Old Testament is in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Old Testament Torah teachers will tell us that that's a picture right there. And from then on, that vav, that little figure of speech that we would often overlook completely, represents the coming together of heavenly realities and earthly realities. That it's a connection point between what matters in heaven and what matters on the earth. And I don't know that you can take that application, you can take that that teaching all the way through the scripture with that one little word. But these eight verses that we've read in English are connected at the beginning by that letter, Vav. And every word at the beginning of these verses begins with a V sound. And in the in the Hebrew, and I posted I posted one. It was a bad recording. Okay, like I sound bored to death with it. But 
it begins with, you can hear the sound. And you can't see that or hear that as we read it in the English. So all of these eight verses are connected in that way. And if you look at verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. That is, if you will, the foundation. That's the connecting point for everything else that follows in this passage. And I think it ties back into what came in verse 40. Give me right. Give me life, Father. Give me life in your righteousness In your righteousness, Lord. Give me life. So what does that life look like? What does that life look like as we're walking with God, following him according to his word? I think this passage tells us that. Alex Moyer put it this way. I put this in your outline. The opening verse is a concise description of a converted person. If you're a believer today, if you're a follower of Christ, Moyer says this verse and this passage describes what our lives ought to look like. One person who has been confronted by the unfailing, committed love of God And has benefited from the divine activity of salvation. All is described in the word of God. So the unfailing covenant love of God. The the love of God is the connection point to every circumstance and every situation. Every circumstance and every situation. You could say I'm going through a tough time at home. And God and his covenant love. I'm going through a difficult time in my marriage. And God and his covenant love is right there. Man, I dread going back to school tomorrow. And God will be there. He'll be there in his faithfulness. He'll be there according to his word. So, And God just goes with everything as we see it spelled out in this passage of Scripture. And, and we know that because of what we see here, his promise, his word, his rules, his precepts, his testimonies, his commandments, his statutes, all of that. And our lives will be radically changed if we can come along beside the psalmist and say, Lord, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love, which I love. So I've, I've as I played, I've played with it some, but I, I pray that it's not been loose playing with it. As I've worked through this passage this week, I actually posted something this morning that I'm going to refer to later on. But let me give you a kind of a loose, literal translation of this passage following the pattern that we have in the Hebrew language, okay? And again, it's based on, I believe there's a direct tie between verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness give me life verse 40 and in verse 41 and God's committed mercy or his his committed love comes to us in our salvation we see it in his word and God's committed love gives us the word we need to face critics when we're trusting in that word and God's committed love gives us the desire to be continually obedient And God's committed love frees us to live that way because we trust his word. And verse 46, and God's committed love emboldens us to proclaim his word without fear. And verse 47 and 48, and God's committed love fills us with delight in him, love for him and his word, and a desire to serve him or literally to put our hands to the task. And God's committed love compels us to meditate on it, to go deeper in it. To just rest in it. 
I wrote a prayer in my journal this morning, um, and I've been praying it all week. And I actually posted that. It's very weird, I know. It's unusual. But I did that to just help us kind of see how we can pray through a passage like this, using God's Word as, as the prayer we pray. And so before we even look at, at how to, you know, maybe looking at some of these individual verses and some of these concepts, just, just follow along with me. And I posted this on our Facebook page this morning, so you can go back and look at it and use it if you want to, ignore it if you want to, change it if you want to. I just pray it might be a help to you. But again, time back into the verse 40, the righteousness of God that gives us life. How do we pray for that life in light of these verses? Lord, let your steadfast covenant love or your mercy come to me, your salvation according to your promise. God, thank you that your mercy is is new every day. And the promises that I see in your word are all yes in Christ. And one of those promises is the promise that as long as I'm walking with him, I'm going to face opposition and persecution and criticism. And I will have an answer for that critic. For the one who taunts me. Because I trust in your word. Lord, I want to spend time in it. I want to read it. I want to pray it. I want to consume it. But Lord, you know my heart. You know my struggles. Sin clouds my heart. Busyness takes my attention. Fear of man shuts my mouth. Lord, strengthen me for the race. Equip me for the battle. And don't ever take completely your word out of my mouth. Because my hope is in your rules. May it never be, Lord, that sin or shame or discouragement or fear closes my mouth. Guard my heart, Lord, from hoping in what others think of me. In their approval. In their likes. Lord, I pray for consistency. That my hope in your word would be validated by the life that I live. And I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Lord, I pray that. I want to resolve to do that. Not because I can, but because you can. Not because of my ability, but because of who I am in Christ. And I will walk in the freedom in the wide places because I seek your precepts. Your ways. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not enslaved to sin anymore. I don't have to live that way because of Christ. I can be bold and confident in Him. And in Your Word, not in mine. So I can speak Your testimonies, even to kings, and not be ashamed. Because I like to talk about what I love. And I can discuss what I delight in. So Lord, help me find my delight in Your commandments. Help me love them. Help me love you. And Lord, I find that those things I love, I delight in. And Lord, I want to do them. I put my hands to the effort. I put in the planning. I I, I make it happen. God, help that be the case with your word. Because I want to lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I want to meditate on your statutes, on your word and on your ways. All through Christ, my Lord, for his glory. Amen. That's just a that's just how I did it with this passage. And I, and 
I pray I continue to do that. Just continue to spend time in it. And I encourage you to do that too. Now, these verses, Lord have mercy, we could take a long, long time to look at all of these verses. Your steadfast love comes to me, O Lord. Or your, your mercy is as translated in some ways. I think the old King James translates it mercy. And it comes from that hesed love, that covenant love of God. He says, your salvation according to your promise. I'm, I'm not exactly sure which promise the psalmist has in mind. I think at least one of them certainly would be going all the way back to Genesis 12, where God made a promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of the world would be blessed. To this old man that did not have a son, God promised that through his descendants the world would be blessed. In Genesis 15, God sealed that promise. Go back and read it. Literally, God cut a promise, cut a covenant. The word covenant means to cut. And you see it literally done in Genesis 15 when God commands Abraham to take these animals and cut them in half and lay them side, lay them so that someone could walk through them. And the idea in Genesis 15 is that when two parties were agreeing to make a covenant like that, that split apart animal that was dead is a picture of what one says, let it be to me as it is to these animals if I don't fulfill my end of this deal. But you read in Genesis 15 that Abraham fell asleep. And only one person walked through that. Only one person, one, walked through those animals. That torch that, that God walked through there. And God's saying, let it be to me as it was to these dead animals. If I don't fulfill this covenant. Let this curse be on me. That was the promise that he made to Abraham. And lo and behold, we read in Galatians that that anyone who relies on the works of the law, anyone who says, I'm going to do all these things that the psalmist says he's going to do, and relies just on his ability and his work to do that, is cursed because everyone is cursed who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law, it says in Galatians 3.10. But then it goes on to say, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Which, by the way, in Genesis is exactly what Abraham did. He just believed God. And the law, it says, is not of faith, but rather of the one who shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God said, let it be to me. I'll take the curse on me if this covenant is not fulfilled. And he did. Jesus was killed. That curse came upon him, not because of his sin, but because of ours. I think Abraham, I think the psalmist reflected back on that promise. I think he reflected back on that mercy. Here's what Spurgeon said. (laughs) This is the only time I'll quote him today, okay? I know it's a temptation for preachers. I'm telling you, Spurgeon's work in the Psalms is amazing. It's amazing. So, but I'm only going to quote him one time, but this one's good. Listen. What a mass of mercies are heaped together in the one salvation of our Lord Jesus. It includes the mercies that spare us before our conversion. And the mercies that lead up to it. And then comes calling mercy. Regenerating mercy. Converting mercy. Justifying mercy. Pardoning mercy. 
Nor can we exclude from complete salvation any of the many mercies which are needed to conduct the believer safely to glory. Salvation is an aggregate of mercies incalculable in number, priceless in value, incessant in application, eternal in endurance. To the God of our mercies be glory world without end. Amen, Spurge. Wow. God's committed love gives us salvation. And then look, and God's committed love gives us the word we need because if we're going to walk with him in this relationship of salvation, we will face critics, right? We will face opposition. Jesus promised us that we'll be persecuted for his name's sake. Then I'll have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And in verse 43, take not that word of truth utterly out of my mouth. There's two negatives there right beside each other in the Hebrew. Just emphasizing, Lord, don't ever, ever let this take place, that it would be removed from me, for my hope is in your rules. Church, don't ever forget. Students, don't ever forget that the wisdom of this world will constantly, incessantly, through its prophets, through its pundits, through its philosophers, will be opposed to the wisdom of God and His Word. No exception. And if the ways of this world seem to correlate with the ways of God and the wisdom of God, it's for the purpose of accomplishing that worldly purpose, not for the purposes of God. And today, brilliant minds confront the minds of believing college students and in Philosophies that are subtle begin to work their way into our minds. Arguments that seem to make sense seduce us. They just seduce us. So what these verses are teaching us is there is an answer for us to the one who would confront us, the one who would, the one who would make accusation, the one who would enter in with those philosophies, with those lies. But it doesn't just pop into our heads. Out of nowhere. Right? I mean, if it's not in us, it can't be used by us when it comes to God's Word like that, okay? We can't sleep on it at night like I prayed it would through my calculus test in college and just kind of leak in this ear. It doesn't leak in. We read it. We pray it. We meditate on it. We spend time in it. And Jesus promised us that as we... Take in that word when we stand before critics and accusers. He promised us, just as the world hated me, it will hate you, he says in John sixteen eighteen, The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And then he says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. I'll have an answer for him who taunts me. As the spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it into my heart and it pours out of my mouth. And it is my word. No, it's not. It's not my word. It's God's word. It's according to his word. I'm trusting in your word. My hope is in your rules, not in what they may say or do. And then the psalmist says, Lord, let what I say be backed up by how I live. And he says it in a radical way. Look at verse 44. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. 
There's this resolve that the psalmist makes over and over in Psalm 119. There's this pledge of loyalty. And, and you might be thinking, well, I could never make a pledge like that. I could never make a pledge like, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep this pledge. I'm going to keep this law continue. Well, you already did if you're married. Right? You stood before that pastor. You stood before those witnesses in that congregation at that place. And love compelled you to say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Till death parts us, I am yours and yours alone. You made that pledge. So yes, we make pledges like that. And unfortunately for myself and for many of us, we default back to our weaknesses. We default back to our flesh. I think when, we, when it comes to standing before God and said, God, I promise to do your word. Being bold in that proclamation, being bold in that promise. But again, it's not based on what I know I can do. It's what I know God can do in and through me. That's the provision that he gives us. Lord, I'll keep your law continually. And you make it available for me to do that. I have the freedom to do that. Look at verse 45. Liberty and freedom are available, he says, because I sought your precepts. It's not a narrow, constraining lifestyle that is the lifestyle we're called to in Christ. We study God's word. We apply it in our lives. And guess what? We are set free. Wide places is what the psalmist says. Broad plains. Just imagine that in your mind. I'm, I'm free to not do what I used to feel like I had to do in sin. I'm free to not be held by that chain. That chain's been broken in my life. And doing the will of God and doing it the way God wants us to always frees us. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. I don't think I can walk. I don't think I can do this Christian thing, Gerald. It's just, man, there's... there's too much of a list of don'ts. Hmm? No, if there's a list of don'ts, you're listening and reading something else. Yeah, there's things we're called not to do. But it doesn't restrict our lifestyle. It frees us to live the kind of life that God created us to live. I'll walk in a wide place because I've sought your precepts. And as I walk in that place, and I am confronted, and I have the opportunity to witness, and I have the opportunity to speak on your behalf, Lord, I will speak your testimonies. And remember, this word that's used several times in Psalm 119, the testimonies of God, is God going into the witness box and making testimony about himself. This is what God says about himself. And, and the psalmist is saying, I will speak your testimony to kings and I'll not be ashamed. So whenever God steps up and says this about himself, our boldness is just exponentially blown up. And it's not a boldness in me or my word or my opinion. Church, if it's our opinion, shut up. The world doesn't need our opinion. We don't need to be posting our opinion. Testimonies, God's testimony about himself. Yes, we are gracious, we are kind, but we are bold 
and we are clear in God's testimony. I will speak of your testimonies, and I won't be afraid regardless of the position that the one who hears me is in. Think of Daniel before the king. Think of Paul. Think of Jesus. Think of those saints in the, in the book of Acts. Think of martyrs down through the ages. I'll speak of your testimonies. Verse 47, 48, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And again in verse 48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your, ta- on your statutes. That, that word for delight there in verse 47 indicates that it's just a continuing delight, okay? It's just, I'm continuing, Lord, to take joy in your word, joy in what you command, joy in what you've given me. He enjoys, the psalmist enjoys God's word because he loves God and enjoys him. He's delighting in the person of Christ and, and in his word. He loves that word. He says that twice. And to, and to give evidence to that love... It comes in two ways in this passage. First, the word lift up my hands to your commandments, that's a little weird. What does that mean, to lift up my hands to your commandments? Are we praising God's word like we worship him? No. No, we're not. About 40 years ago or so, when it was even before then, I guess, Southern Baptist Convention was going through our conservative resurgence is what it has been called. There was a real revival here about around the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, holding to it, living it, teaching it. And somebody made a motion. I wasn't there. Somebody made a motion at one of the national conventions that we build this big, giant Bible and place it in the courtyard of one of the Baptist facilities someplace. Praise God it got voted down. My mind went to Daniel. You know, this this image there, you're to bow down. I know that probably wasn't what was intended, but we're, we like our statues and stuff. And, and we can often get our hearts a little twisted up around those things. God never intended for us to look at a big rock model of his word. He intends for it to be written on our hearts, coming from those pages into our hearts. So when it says lift up your hands, I don't think it means to worship the word. It could mean to pray for the ability to do the word. And I think there may be an element of that there. But to lift up the hands in in this context, and it's not my idea. I think other scholars, other teachers would say this, is to I'm going to put my hands, I'm going to lift them up to the task. I'm going to put my hands to the work of your word. I love it. I delight in it. And those things I love and I delight, I like to do, right? And I, and I put effort into them. I plan. I, I, I do the work of making things are going to, making sure it's going to work. So first he's going to lift up his hands to the commandments. He's going to put his hands to it. He's going to make the effort outwardly. And then inwardly, he's going to meditate. He's going to rest in, dwell in. Think on, meditate. One writer said, that which goes deepest into the heart goes widest into the world. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying here. Truth moves from our head, it moves to our heart, then it moves into our mouth, and it moves into our hands. And the psalmist is praying for all of that. In this path, that's what this life looks like. 
So as we close, think back again on how you might pray. Think about, and God, God's covenant mercies that are new every morning. God's covenant love that covers us through the blood of Jesus. The covenant love that holds us, that will never, nothing will ever separate us from that love in Christ. So your own verse by verse prayer and application of this, Lord, thank you for that covenant love. Thank you for those mercies that are new every day. The promises that I see in your word. Lord, thank you that as I'm walking with you and facing opposition, Lord, if that word is in my heart, then that word will come out my mouth and I can trust your Holy Spirit to bring that to bear in my life. Is that not what Peter said? First Peter three, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter, I think, was reflecting back on let your faithful love, your covenant love come to be. Your salvation according to your word. And Lord, let that word be how I answer my critics. With gentleness and grace and truth and boldness. Let that be your prayer. Let that be something that you pray for. And I, and I have that answer. Like again, a church, we can't answer what we don't have. Dempster came into my office this week. I'm telling you, he's the smartest human being in this building right now. All right? I just... He came into my office with this big, thick physics textbook that he wrote. 265 pages. And guess what? There's another one that he wrote that's 500 pages long. A stinking physics textbook. And he's showing me that. And just praising God that he said, you know, I really had no desire to do this through a translator. He said that. Um, but your Lord just, and, and every chapter has a biblical passage that sets the context for the scientific and mathematic truth that's coming after that. I was just so impressed by that. Now I said, Dempster, brother, it could be written in Spanish, it could be written in Latin, it could be written in Hebrew, and it mean nothing to me. Maybe a little more in Hebrew than any of those others. You know, but I'm, I'm thankful you're here, brother. You're still the smartest person in this building. Best Bible teacher, no doubt about it, okay? Um, I don't even know why I told you that story. But <laughs> anyway, just just having that word, that's what it was, in my brain, in my heart, out my mouth, and into my hands. You know, verse 43, he says, Lord, I hope in your rules. We struggle with this, church. We struggle with this as individuals. The psalmist said in Psalm 43, 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? And then he answers that question. Put your hope in God. I shall again praise him. When we hope in the approval of others, when we hope in the love of others, based on likes and agreements and positions that we hold together, when our hope is in anything other than Christ and his word, not only will we be disappointed, we'll be discouraged and even depressed. Don't ever take your word out of my mouth, Lord. Don't ever let my actions, my life, anything else that I say, silence my testimony, Lord. I want to keep your word. I resolve to do that. God, help me resolve to do that. And Lord, thank you for the freedom that I have in Christ. And if you're in Christ today, that's what we're living in. It's freedom. Okay? It's not American freedom. 
We do exercise the freedom bought by the blood of people who have served before us. But this freedom is eternal in Christ and it's bought with His blood. And we don't have to be slave to sins anymore. Have you known that freedom? Have you trusted in this one who gives you true liberty? Is your life marked by that freedom from sin? Or by patterns that you can't seem to control? Trust Jesus. He'll free you from that. And the delight and joy that He gives will never be taken. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. And God, we thank You for that covenant love that is there holding us eternally in and through every single situation. And God, we thank You for that in Jesus, who is our proof of that, sealed in that, Lord. And we thank you for that because of your Holy Spirit. And we'll praise you for that now and we'll praise you for that eternally. And we will do that for the glory of our Lord. Amen.